This is Yudaha Cohen, Vision Movement, Vision Magazine, and you're listening to the Next Stage Podcast. For the last couple months, this country has been rocked by anti-government protests around the issue of judicial reform. Uh, Israel's new coalition has been advancing very aggressive legislation aimed at curtailing the powers of our Supreme Court. Obviously, there's a lot more behind this than simply a question of the power of our judiciary. And in order to really dive deep into this issue so listeners can fully appreciate what's taking place here, uh, I invited uh, an attorney that I have a lot of respect for, I've known many years, uh, Tehila Gimpel, to join me on the show to give us a little bit of background, uh, just the story of Israel's Supreme Court, how it attained the power that it currently has, and why it feels so threatened by these current reforms. Tila, welcome to the show. Hi, Yehuda. Thanks for having me. Let's dive in. Right now, uh, one could argue that Israel's Supreme Court is the most powerful institution in the country. Uh, would you agree with that statement or no? Um, I would definitely agree that they have an unusual amount of power. And I think that, you know, to understand it, you, you have to, it didn't always it didn't always have the level of influence and power that it has right now. And you have to sort of uh, go back to the beginning in order to understand how this developed. Um, would that be all right with you, Yehuda, if I just give a little background? I would love it if you could walk us through that. Okay, great. So Israel is established in May 1948. In May 1948, we have Israel's Megillat Atzma'ut, the Declaration of Israel's Independence. Within that, it states that by October of that year, meaning October 1948, we're going to have a constitution. There was a widespread agreement that we need a constitution that will lay out how the government is going to work and what are going to be the rights of the individuals living in this new Israel. Um, but as you can imagine, October comes and goes, and no one was able to agree upon a constitution. Why was no one able to agree upon a constitution? You can probably you can probably guess. I know that you talk about this a lot on your podcast about the different sort of uh, groups within Israel. You discuss Yosef and Yehuda, and some people said the Torah is our constitution. We don't need any other constitution. Whereas there were um, there were other sides saying, no, we want to have more of a liberal democracy. We want to have a constitution that's more similar to Western countries. You had people that pulled more in a communist direction, more in a capitalist direction. It was very hard to come to any kind of agreement or constitution, particularly because Israel was facing a lot of economic and security challenges uh, during those first years. Mm -hmm. So uh, what happened was, was the constitution was not written. And there was a decision called the Harari decision in about, uh, I think it was in 1950, the Harari decision, instead of writing a constitution, what we're going to do is throughout the coming years and decades, slowly aggregate, hobble together a constitution, chapter by chapter, starting with whatever we can agree upon. And those chapters would be called basic laws. And so over the coming decades of Israel's existence, the, the Knesset legislated numerous basic laws. All of those basic laws were talking about the way the government works, right? Because what is a constitution? A constitution has two elements. A constitution says, you know, it, it describes what the uh, authority of the government is, how the government is going to work, and what are the rights of the citizens. So these first basic laws just basically legislated how the government would work. There's basic law Knesset, basic law government, basic law judiciary, basic law military, and each of these basic laws described how each branch would function. Up until 1992, there were no basic laws discussing human rights and civil rights. 
Does that mean that there were no human rights and civil rights in Israel? On the contrary, what happened was because there were no, uh, there were certain laws that discussed uh, equality, uh, you know, the, the law for equality of women, the law for equality in labor, there were laws, but they were not set out as being constitutional. And at the same time, the judiciary itself, the Supreme Court itself, began recognizing judicially through many different uh, court rulings, various uh, rights that the court began protecting. For example, it started in 1949, for example, when uh, the government wanted to close down a uh, the newspaper of the Communist Party uh, for publicizing something against the government. Uh, the newspaper went to the Supreme Court and the Supreme Court said, no, the government cannot do that. They basically limited government authority and said, because we have we have recognition of the freedom of speech and freedom of press. How do I know that? Because you know, the court asked, how do we know that? Because Israel is defined in the Declaration of Independence as a democracy. You can't have democracy without free press. And therefore, uh, we're going to defend uh, individuals against this overreach of government. And over the decades, many, many rulings recognizing different rights without any particular constitutional legislation. I could throw in another example. Mm -hmm. In the early days of our state, uh, our Prime Minister, David Ben-Gurion, actually made it illegal for uh, Yisrael Eldad, who had been the ideological leader of Lehi, the fighters for the freedom of Israel, who, who really led the struggle mm -hmm. to drive the British from our country, um, Ben-Gurion made it essentially illegal for him to be able to obtain a teaching position. No one was allowed to hire him to teach. There was a fear of him teaching. Mm. And he brought this to the Supreme Court, and the Supreme Court uh, ruled that, in fact, Ben-Gurion cannot do that. The government cannot make it illegal for him to teach. He, he has to have the ability to, to be employed as a teacher. Um, still, no one really wanted to hire him uh, after that because, you know, Ben-Gurion had come out publicly against him being able to teach our youth. But eventually he did get a position as a professor at the Technion in Haifa. Yeah, so that's a perfect example. That's a perfect example of the Supreme Court protecting individuals in the early decades of Israel, protecting individuals from government overreach that hurts, you know, or that, 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 doesn't, that doesn't square with basic civil rights that are expected in a democracy. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, so that's a great example. Now, now what happened in 1992, finally, we started to begin to see basic laws that didn't just talk about how the government is going to work, but about the rights of the citizens. You have in 1992, two basic laws that are made. One is the basic law of freedom of occupation. Very straightforward. Anybody can work in any occupation that they want. You can't bar somebody, for example, from a certain type of occupation or, or decide for people what occupation they have to work in. They have freedom of occupation. So for example, there had been you know governments that had tried to uh, limit uh, import of non-kosher meat, just, you know, for example, and the basic law protected people who wanted to work in selling not kosher food. You're allowed to work in that profession because you have freedom of profession, freedom of occupation. But that's less uh, le that was less controversial. The more uh, dramatic law or what turned out to be a more dramatic law was the, the basic law, human dignity. Mm -hmm. They were trying to set out in the basic law of human dignity, a list of rights that everyone could agree on. So the, the basic law of human dignity sets out such rights as the right for dignity, uh, the right to maintain your bodily integrity, bodily autonomy, uh, protection against uh, seizure, uh, unlawful seizure of your property, um, the right to privacy. These were all very consensus. They'd basically already been recognized by the Supreme Court. So these were like broadly accepted rights that everyone was able to agree upon. There were certain rights that were suggested to be included in this basic law, but were ultimately rejected. For example, uh, some people wanted to put into the basic law the right to equality, 
but that created um that created conflict because for example uh the ultra orthodox said well wait a minute if there's equality does that going to mean that we're going to have to serve in the military uh is that mean that we have to let women for example have uh you know authority that they hadn't traditionally had in the past and others said well you know so, so they said well let's put that aside we're not going to include that um and also the security agency said well wait a minute does that mean that we're gonna have to have equality for jews and arabs for example when you go to the airport uh you know you know screaming things and you know things like that are we gonna have to have equality for everybody we don't want to touch that hot potato let's just leave it out also other things what about uh that you know some people said let's include freedom of religion and some people said wait 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 freedom of religion well does that mean you know uh, Christians can, uh, you know, worship at the Kotel and, you know, su such kind of fears. So people said, let's leave that out too. And they, there were a whole bunch of uh, rights that were left out. And the really like super hard, like hard kernel of the consensus was included in that law. Now, nobody thought anything really dramatic was happening. How do I know nobody thought anything really dramatic was happening? Because the law passed at something like, you know, I don't remember the exact numbers, but like 32 to 24, meaning the majority of the 120 Knesset members didn't even show up that day. They did not realize that anything super dramatic was happening. They thought they were just, you know, recognizing human rights that were very consensus and agreed upon. Right. So, so now what happens? 1995 rolls along and the Supreme Court... We have justices Barak, Shamgar, and Cheshin. In a very, like, seemingly unrelated case, it was called Bank Mizrahi against Migdal, there was a, a, arose a question if in the budgetary laws, it was, you know, if it's possible to, let's say, reduce uh, a debtor's bank, uh, a bank debt, you know, to, to the bank. And is that uh, taking away their property uh, against the basic law of human dignity, which says that you cannot have your property unlawfully taken, you know, or, or have your, you know, you, you have protection of your rights to property. And they didn't, you know, they, 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 the case was settled. Uh, it does, it, it's, it's really not relevant, but in the, in the sort of commentary that the judges gave, judges Barak and Shamgar started to discuss within that ruling, what is the status of a regular legislation that does not uh, that does not follow the basic law of human dignity. And there for the first time, they say this basic law of human dignity is not just another piece of legislation, it is a super legislation, meaning that it overrides any future law that would be passed. Now, this was brand new. Nobody had ever thought, even though the Supreme Court had protected human rights in the past, none of, nobody had ever thought that they could cancel Knesset legislation. The Supreme Court had used its authority to override governmental decisions, overreach, but they had, did not have this idea that you could simply cancel outright something that had been legislated by a majority in the Knesset as the representative of the people. So Barak and Shamgar in this case come and say, no, now that there is this basic law of now that there are these basic laws that protect human rights, these supersede any other future legislation. And we now have this authority to cancel laws of the Knesset. Cheshin, in his dissenting opinion, said, wait, 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 you're saying that this is a constitution? You can't just make a constitution in the back door. The people who, the, 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 the members of Knesset who were passing this law had no idea that they were doing that because it doesn't say that in the law. It simply says these are the rights of individuals. It didn't say that the Supreme Court could cancel any laws. And so Cheshin said, uh, 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 a constitution cannot be made in the back door. People need to be aware. A constitution is something that needs to be made by the people. And you can't just sneak it in. 
but his opinion was not accepted. And, and this ruling went largely unnoticed because it was published only uh, very, very shortly after the assassination of Yitzhak Rabin. And so everyone was talking about that. So they released this ruling very uh, shortly after that. So it went largely uh, unreported. It was like back page news. It was not uh, considered you know, dramatic, even though, you know, under normal circumstances, that should have been considered a revolution. And they later referred to it as the constitutional revolution, because basically in 1995, Israel got a constitution, the constitution it didn't know it had, it thought it was sort of hobbling together this constitution over, over decades and said, no, this is the constitution. And now we can override laws. <laughs> what this led to was a great deal of newfound power to the Supreme Court. Who's, and, you know, some people say, well, the Supreme Court doesn't use it that often. They've only, you know, I'm saying only, quote unquote, canceled 22 laws since that ruling. But besides for those 22 laws that they've canceled, their ruling, their taking of this power to cancel legislation led to a tremendous cooling effect where the legislator is essentially fearful to even put up any, you know, go through all the legislative process, which is very long and arduous just to have the law knocked down in the Supreme Court. So a lot of laws that perhaps the public is in favor of and would like their representatives to push forward, a lot of these pieces of legislation are not pushed forward out of fear of being canceled by the Supreme Court. So the effects of this reach far beyond those particular 22 laws that were canceled, even though 22 is not necessarily that small of a number, but it, it reaches far beyond that. Um, and parallel to all of that, the Supreme Court did another thing and ruled that they can interpret the basic law of human dignity to include rights that were not mentioned directly in the law. So they said human dignity inherently includes such rights as the right to equality. And therefore, not only can we cancel laws that don't square with the basic law of human dignity, we can cancel laws that don't square with the basic law in our interpretation of it. Even though they knew that certain rights had been specifically omitted, they interpreted those rights right back into the law as if they were there and then considered that something that can be uh, that can override any future legislation, even in their creative interpretation. And that's how we got to the place where we are now. First of all, Tila, that was a great summary of uh, Thank you. of Israel's judicial history and the history of our basic laws and our lack of constitution, or maybe not lack of constitution, according to what you're saying. Maybe we've had a constitution for a long time now, just haven't known it. And uh, I mean, the one the one thing you didn't really touch on that is probably important for listeners to understand is the issue of the legal advisors in various ministries. Can you just explain that? Because that essentially gives the judicial establishment uh, essentially what we can call agents in all the government ministries that can essentially advance their, uh, I don't want to say their agenda, their interests, because maybe that's too strong a word, but their worldview. I think that there are essentially legal advisors in, in the different government ministries that uh, essentially promote the worldviews and advise against laws that would likely be struck down, as you said. You want to get into that? Uh, exactly. A hundred percent. And that's actually why when you first started out, the very first thing you said when we when we began this conversation was that the Supreme Court is essentially the highest uh, authority, I think was your, I don't remember your exact term. And I kind of hesitated when I said that they have a deal of power, but I hesitated because they're in a really good competition for that title with the legal advisors. And you can, you can argue who has more power to a certain degree. Um, even they're both part of the legal system. But in Israel, the 
um, legal advisors to the government and particularly the attorney general have a great deal of power that's been expanded over the years to be far beyond what you and I think of when we think of a legal advisor. I'm a lawyer. When I have clients, they come to me and they ask my advice and sometimes they take my advice and sometimes they don't take my advice and they do that at their own risk. What's happened in Israel was that this doctrine has developed over the years that, that has given a great deal of authority to the legal advisors to the government. These are unelected officials. They are lawyers that are, uh, you know, have have uh, the job of ostensibly advising the politicians on the legality and the legal intricacies of various decisions that they want to make. But what's happened over the years is that their advice has become binding. And furthermore, the government has not been allowed to get external, these are all, you know, have, has been done through a series of, of rulings, the government has not been allowed to retain external legal advisors should the legal advisors in their particular ministries not agree with the line of policy or legislation that they want to be taking. So, for example, you can have a situation where the government gets sued. Uh, you know, let's say the legal advisor does not like a certain law. We saw this with Chokaz uh, Dara, the law of uh, trying to legalize uh, certain outposts where the... When you say outpost, you mean like small Jewish villages in different parts of the world? Yes, exactly. Where, where uh, you know, the land ownership was, let's say, unclear or disputed. So to try to set out a law that would uh, allow these villages to, you know, uh, continue to stand and, and offer compensation to, let's say, to owners or, or uh, partial owners of, of land. So now, that's just an example. Um, you know, if, if the... If the uh, if the attorney general says I don't like this law, that's basically the end. Because what's going to happen if you try to pass the law and then you the government gets sued by somebody saying this law is unconstitutional? Then those legal advisors say I'm not defending I'm not defending this in court. And the uh, government was very limited in its ability to even uh, you know get get outside representation. And so these legal advisors have gotten who are who are not elected and don't have any accountability to the public because the public cannot remove them or replace them, and it's very very difficult. Or politicians to fire them because of, for you know many reasons and labor law and all you know and and a series of you know court rulings that limit the ability to do that so you have a situation where unelected advisors have quite a let's say disproportionate um influence on government policies and on legislation so that's another element that's going on here so just one question on that what is the connection if any between those legal advisors and the Supreme Court justices? I mean, what is their connection to one another? To what extent can we see them as part of the same, the same system, the same institution, the same? There's a great deal of overlap. There's a great deal of overlap and transfers in Israel between these types of organizations, just as in the in the security, uh, you know, in the security fields, you see a lot of kind of movement, like, you know, the head of the Shin Bet became the head of the police. There's a lot of flow between security agencies. So you have the same thing within the legal institutions. The prosecution is the main, let's say, uh, feed into uh, into the Supreme Court, meaning people who rise the ranks within the prosecution often become Supreme Court justices, uh, attorney generals. Often the next step after being attorney general is to become a Supreme Court justice. So these people not only uh, uh, generally know each other, but they they flow between these institutions quite freely. And somebody who is now in the Supreme Court was just a few years ago quite often uh, part of the prosecution, which you know raises you know issues when you, when you're in criminal cases in general. You know a lot of these people work together very 
uh, recently and now and now you know one is supposed to judge uh, the veracity of the other's claims so you have you have a lot of connection you definitely have a lot of connection between the various legal institutions in Israel and the same is true with the legal academia meaning the academia also feeds professors of law our own our own Barack for example who was the leader of this who was the you know the, the the chief the chief justice for many 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 years and was really the the leading mind on all of this uh, on on this on the constitutional revolution as it as it has been referred to that that he led in 1995 um you know he was you know a professor of law in hebrew university and i think dean of the law school and then became the attorney general and then became a uh, supreme court justice and then became the chief justice i think there's a there's a great deal of interface between all of the legal institutions so it would be correct to look at the supreme court to look at the attorney general uh, to look at the legal advisors in the various ministries and just prosecutors throughout the country as part of the same judicial establishment it's a similar establishment and it's also very very uh, homogenous philosophies like when i was in law school you learn aron barak and his philosophy more than anything else it's the primary um the education that you get is primarily focused and adherent to the the judicial philosophy that he was pushing forward and so in doing that you know the you just churn out people that they, they don't even we you know as students we didn't even question this. it's like as if it's torah from you know from sinai that's just that's just how things are and you don't really learn competing ideas and so the academia churns out lawyers that are all kind of that not all but primarily from this one school of thinking they then feed into the uh into the you know various uh legal uh legal bodies let's say of the of the government and that turns often into uh future supreme court justices so you you have this this connection that's not just personal but it's also philosophical right so we we have this judicial power structure in our country that essentially uh subscribes to a very specific ideological worldview we could say it's the worldview of western liberalism um the liberal end of liberal philosophy uh meaning they they take like liberal political positions within the framework of liberal ideology and they seem to be uh certainly from the outside i'm not an attorney i don't i don't interact with these people on a regular basis but the impression that i think a lot of israelis have is that this is like a a click of elites that are very out of touch with the common person often promoting the interests of Israel's ruling class of like the wealthiest sliver of Israeli society yeah there there's uh, many people have sort of a, a feeling like that i don't know how to you know address it i'm not an expert in you know political philosophy or or economics you know in that in that sense to know uh, to to place it precisely but what i can say is a lot of people do not see themselves reflected on the court and the court is uh has a self-cloning mechanism and so it would be precise to say that they that the court has traditionally come from the same um let's say you know ashkenazic highly educated upper uh echelons of the you know socioeconomic let's say strata um and that they all come from very similar backgrounds and it's not a coincidence that you see a court that's not you know you look at Israel Israel is one of the most diverse societies we have we have Jews and Arabs and and Druze and we have you know within the Jewish world we have religious and not religious and all, everything in between that and we have all different ethnic groups you see Jews that are you know from Ethiopia and from Arab countries and from European countries we, we're we're of the most diverse 
you know, countries that you can imagine. Many people look at the ingathering of the exiles as a, a, a miracle that's that's hard to explain. I mean, in such a short time, we were able to absorb people from so many different backgrounds. And you see that in the Knesset. You see, you know, you see a broad range of, you know, religious philosophies, economic philosophies, political philosophies, uh, ethnic backgrounds. You see it all there in the Knesset. And then when you look at the court, you don't see that at all. You see people that primarily look the same, think the same, talk the same, and come from the same places and hold by the same worldviews. And those are not the worldviews that are reflective primarily of, of, of the people of Israel. And so it's not a coincidence. It's not like those people were simply the most qualified and they coincidentally all rolled into the same Supreme Court. The Supreme Court had the, 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 there's the the mechanism for choosing judges is essentially guaranteed to sell to allow the court to self-replicate because Israel has a very unusual way of appointing judges. There's a committee of nine. This is you know how how uh, judges are chosen in Israel. There's a committee of nine people. Three of them are Supreme Court judges. Two of them are lawyers representing the bar association. So already right there, you have five out of nine members of the committee being uh, from the same kind of legal background. Now, even if you were going to disconnect, you know, not even to have any kind of conspiracy theory here about the bar voting with the judiciary, we've seen that the bar has traditionally voted with the judiciary, and it's obvious why. Who is the crazy lawyer from the bar association that wants to get in a fight with a Supreme Court judge? You're going to appear before that judge. You don't want to be going up against them. So just even without any kind of, uh, you know, need to show the, you know, mutual whatever give and take between these institutions, it's obvious to anyone, you know, that no matter how you would cut it up, they're almost always going to vote as a block. There was one time where the where the uh, Bar Association went up against the opinion of the of the three judges on the committee, Effie Navet, the head of the Bar Association, uh, decided to not vote with them. And he was immediately uh, you know, you could say it was an obvious takedown. He was immediately taken down. The uh, prosecution offered immunity to a, a journalist, Hadass Steif, to open up his phone. She says, you know, she had somebody else open the phone, but she was offered immunity to bring his phone from his ex-wife to the prosecution. And they found all sorts of, you know, sordid relationships that he had there. He was eventually indicted for things that they found on his phone. Um, Hadass Steif was given immunity, so she was not prosecuted for hacking his phone or for having somebody else hack his phone. Um, and so he was immediately removed. Like, it, it was not, it was a very... It was very uh, short-lived, let's say, that that one instance where the Bar Association did not vote as a block with the Supreme Court. For all the other years of Israel's, uh, you know, Judicial co uh, Appointment Committee, the, the, the Bar Association has voted together as a block with the judiciary. So that's five out of the... Now, of the other four, you have two ministers, the Minister of Justice and another minister, and two members of Knesset, one from the coalition and one from the opposition. So assuming that the coalition and the uh, judiciary don't agree, let's say, on the appointment and the opposition does agree with the judiciary, you're going to have automatically six out of the nine uh, members of this committee voting with the judiciary. So what happened over the years was that you have the judiciary constantly appointing people that think, talk, and look just like them. A perfect example of that is Professor Ruth Gavison. Professor Ruth Gavison, I had the merit to work, the privilege to work with her as her uh, research assistant when I was a college student, Brilliant under any, you know, no no one could could say that she, as a professor of many, many years in the Hebrew University of Law, internationally recognized that she wasn't a brilliant legal mind, but 
Aaron Barak got up on his hind legs and would not allow her to be appointed to the Supreme Court, even though there, she had many people thinking that she would be an excellent Supreme Court judge, did not allow it because although she was seemingly close to the Supreme Court in their views in the, in the sense that she was uh, secular, held many liberal views, but on this one issue, she felt that that the that the judiciary should use restraint when it came to canceling laws by the Knesset. She agreed on this with Justice Hessian's dissenting opinion. Because of that nuance, she was not allowed to be on the Supreme Court. Because of her opposition to judicial activism encroaching on the democratically elected legislature. Exactly. So she did not like the Bank Mizrahi ruling of 1995, and she thought that the court should use restraint and not override the will of the people unless, you know, something terribly egregious. But, you know, in general, the court should not be telling people what their values are. The public should decide what their values are, because a lot of these decisions, when you decide if something, uh, you know, for example, if the court has to decide if something is encroaching on civil rights, it's up to interpretation. These are value judgments. For example, if a religious uh, woman wants to perform artistic performances in front of only women. Well, on the one hand, that's discriminatory against men, you know, so that's uh, the men's rights to, to participate in that. On the other hand, culturally, they're not going to perform if they are going to perform in a mixed crowd because that's not their tradition. And so if you don't allow them to do that in order to protect, let's say, gender equality, you're also hurting gender equality by not allowing women to uh, develop themselves in the fields of the arts. So. Every time you say something is, you know, encroaching on rights, it's a value judgment. And and so when your values are very, very, you know, monolithic and, and come from one specific background and you're one kind of social strata that you uh, travel through, then your decisions are going to reflect that. So she felt that the court, you know, needs to use restraint and, and you know, that the, that the people need to have, the, the public needs to have more influence on these uh, value decisions and not just an unelected court telling people what the right values they should believe in are. Right. That makes sense. So she was barred from receiving a seat on the bench. Exactly. By because they have an automatic majority, because the existing judiciary has an automatic majority in the committee for uh, judicial appointments. Right. So even though she shared the worldview of these other Supreme Court justices, and she would have been a, an example ostensibly of them reproducing themselves, the fact that she opposed judicial activism barred her from being able to sit on the bench. Right. I'm, I'm saying it in order to show that it's such a cloning that it's like, even in small nuances, if there are, are differences, then that person would not be appointed. The appointments tend to be extraordinarily, extraordinarily uh, similar to the existing uh, the existing judges. And so even if they're seemingly very, very similar to one another, but there's this you know, particularity like that, even that would be considered not in line enough with the existing judiciary. By that logic, we could look at our Supreme Court as a cult. I, I'm not, I wouldn't, I don't, I don't, meaning I don't, the definition of cult is like from the field of you know, religion. So I wouldn't, I wouldn't know how to quantify uh, that, but I would say that they are very monolithic and that you have sort of the perfect storm here. I don't know what that turns them into, but it, it's a perfect storm in the sense that you have a great deal of power to cancel legislation that was taken, along with the interpretation of that as being very broad, meaning interpreting the, the Constitution. The, it's sort of a fictitious Constitution that's then interpreted and reinterpreted ever more broadly by a very, very thin sliver 
of society, you know, represent or people that represent a very, very thin sliver of society. And so you kind of have the perfect storm of, of, uh, of what has led many in Israel to feel like the Supreme Court is not really representing uh, their values and interests. Okay, so that brings us to this current coalition's legislation, what they're calling the judicial overhaul legislation. What's actually on the table here? What is the government trying to do? Uh, what are these new laws that they're attempting to pass and how will they affect our judicial system and the relationship between the different powers in this country, the, the balance of power between the legislative and judicial branches of our country? Okay, so what what what's ha- the current government is doing right now is they're trying to uh, reform sort of all of the elements that I've touched on. They're, 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 the reform has like a few different avenues that it's taking. And, um, you know, I'm not, I haven't, uh, you know, drank the Kool-Aid that this is the only way to do it, or this is the, 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 that this is like the perfect reform, but the reform has its own internal logic. And then, you know, you can argue over the details, but in, in, in large, you know, just sort of big picture, just, you know, without going into every single, uh, detail, the main ideas of the reform are as follows regarding the judicial review of legislation, the reform proposes that a random panel of judges would not be allowed to cancel Knesset legislation, that if ever there was the claim that a piece of Knesset legislation does not square with the civil rights, you know, of uh, as, as expressed primarily in the basic law of human dignity, should there be such a claim that the full panel of judges on the Supreme Court needs to hear the case, because otherwise you might have, uh, you know, a random, you know, hobbling together of a few judges that might be very specific in their outlook. And you want to have as broad of a panel as possible for such a weighty issue and that it can't be a simple majority of the Supreme Court. It would the reform proposes that 80 percent of the judges would have to agree that this law is indeed unconstitutional. Now, on the one hand, that's obviously weakening the power of the Supreme Court to cancel legislation because the Supreme Court in its in a supermajority needs to really be convinced that this law is unconstitutional. On the other hand, you do have for the first time the Knesset recognizing, and this has never been done before, the Knesset recognizing that the Supreme Court does in fact have the authority to cancel laws. So in that sense, it's a little bit of a compromise. They're not coming and saying, no, you can't cancel laws. They're saying, we're actually going to give legislative recognition to your power that you took in 1995 to cancel laws. However, there needs to be a broad consensus. Doesn't have to be a complete consensus, but a broad consensus among the Supreme Court judges that this piece of legislation, that a given piece of legislation is indeed unconstitutional. Now within that, there's also a suggestion uh, which I'm not sure is going to be ultimately be part of the reform. I think it's you know more of a negotiating point. There's another thing called the override law. The idea is is that the Knesset, should the Supreme Court cancel a piece of legislation, the Knesset would be able to temporarily and under very specific circumstances temporarily override that uh, Supreme Court ruling. So that's on the issue of judicial reform. Then you have the issue of uh, appointment of judges. The reform on that problem suggests that the appointment committee include larger representation for elected officials that have accountability to the public 
uh, primarily at the expense of the bar representatives, saying that the bar representatives are not critical to this. Let's bring in more representation for the public and less representation for the judiciary, such that, let's say, from you know out of the panel, it would break down evenly representatives from the judiciary, representatives from the government, and representatives from the Knesset. Um, this would obviously give more influence and impact in the choices to elected officials that would seemingly represent the public. And so you would have the idea being to bring in more diverse uh, voices and more diverse people into the court system. Mm -hmm. The third element, so we have the Judicial Appointment Committee, we have Judicial Review, and then the third element is on the issue of legal advisors to limit the authority of legal advisors, that their advice would not be binding, it would be advice just like any other legal advisor, and that should the elected officials want to seek outside legal advice, they'd be allowed to do so. And the fourth element has to do with what's called the reasonability doctrine. Um, over the years, the court has uh, taken for itself the authority to cancel uh, government actions, less and less uh, uh, legislation, more focused on government decisions, policy decisions, decisions by the unelected, you know, unelected officials, both elected and unelected uh, members of the government, uh, you know, different bureaucrats. Uh, the court has taken for itself the authority to cancel their decisions based on unreasonability. And so there's been a lot of critique on this because who decides what's reasonable? You know, they're not saying you've made a decision that's illegal. They're saying you've made a decision that's unreasonable in our eyes. Um, so now this is another part of the reform that, you know, I'm kind of unsure about because we, we do want our officials to act reasonably. On the other hand, when the court is unrepresentative of the public, you know, this kind of idea of unreasonability is going to be very, uh, you know, one-sided and come from a certain, from one very specific worldview. It kind of has, it has sort of unbalanced ramifications. So those are the, those are the main elements those are the four main elements of the suggested reform. And that has sparked protests for the last two months and change, essentially. We've been seeing protests pretty much every Saturday night and often during the week against this legislation. Uh, basically, the, the protests are ostensibly in defense of the Supreme Court and its powers. And uh, the question is, to what extent should we really see that as the issue that people are fighting over? What's motivating people to leave their homes and demonstrate on the streets uh, without even getting into the question of uh, the extent to which the CIA is behind these protests? But the truth is, even if the CIA is orchestrating these protests, uh, it's true that many, many, many Israelis do feel deeply threatened by what's taking place politically and and are opposed to it and want to make themselves heard, regardless of how much outside money or agitation is taking place. So yeah. the way I see it, this really is a, a cultural conflict. This is a, a deep friction in Israeli society between what we often call uh, the forces of Yosef and Yudah on the show. Like Yosef is that part of Israeli identity that is very good at managing the material world, very interested in finding our place among the nations, uh, very influenced by the by the ideological worldview of dominant civilizations. Um, I'd say today Yosef is Tel Aviv. Yosef is the part of Israeli society that wants to be Western, that wants to be like the West. Uh, and then you have on the other side Yehuda, which is much more focused on what makes Israel unique, our identity, our culture, our mission, our Jerusalem, our temple, prophecy, Torah, etc. Uh, and you have the, these two identities clashing. I mean, when it comes to almost any 
social or political issue. Uh, I think someone from Yosef really looks at the issue from the perspective of, well, what is considered, uh, what, what is right and just according to the dominant civilization today. Uh, that's pretty much how Yosef functions. Uh, what is considered moral and ethical according to the dominant civilization today. And Israelis from the, from the Yudah side tend to look at these social and political issues within the framework of, well, what would our ancestors have done? Like, what would uh, Avraham do in such a situation? How would David relate to such a situation? And I think that, you know, both of these camps tend to find the other uh, as, you know, very, very threatening. You know, meaning like one is seeing the other as just backwards and out of touch with the modern world. And the other is seeing the first as, you know, a weak Jew who's kind of betraying our identity, betraying our reason for being, etc. Uh, and and this clash seems to be exploding, meaning this was, I, I would say, a non-antagonistic contradiction within Israeli society until this new government came in and began a blitzkrieg of legislation. I, I think that some of the uh, politicians, especially people like Bezalel Smotrich and Itamar Ben-Gvir, the national camp in Israel has trauma, has traumatic history of seeing our political leaders come into power, whether it's Begin, whether it's Netanyahu, whether it's uh, Ariel Sharon, uh, and selling out their voters, doing things against the will of the people who voted them in. Uh, I think to a certain extent, Smotrich and Ben-Gvir wanted to show this is not that, we are not that, we're going full steam ahead with the things that you want, that we promised you, that we think need to be done. Uh, I don't think they realized they didn't really take power, meaning winning an election and forming a government is not the same thing as taking power in a country. You know, they don't control the capital, they don't control the money, they don't control the media, they don't control the security forces, uh, they don't have the relationships to the diaspora Jewish community or to foreign governments that the opposition has. I think that they really, uh, they antagonize non-antagonistic contradictions, they picked a fight they couldn't win. Or, or they're going to have a lot of trouble winning if they really dig their heels in. And it looks like this internal cultural conflict within Israeli society, which really could have waited a couple of decades to come to the fore, has come to the fore. And I think the people protesting are not protesting about the independence of the judiciary. What they see is a future where these quote-unquote dark elements of Israeli society whether it's the national religious, whether it's the Haredim, whether it's Mizrahim, are going to have more and more power in Knesset, in government. And we need this liberal Western enlightened Supreme Court uh, to defend our society against that, to keep us an outpost of Western civilization. And I think that's what this fight has really been about. Okay, so I'm going to break that down into two. You have two things that you just kind of uh, floated. Uh, you have a cultural analysis and a political analysis. So when it comes to your cultural analysis, I, I, I can see where you're going and I, and I tend to agree that there are these two kind of, it's, it's, it's big pieces and they're nuances, but, but I tend to see that, that I, to understand what you're saying about those forces that are going against each other. However, on the second element, the political element, as if this could have waited and it was non-antagonistic, I disagree with you on both, on both fronts. I think it's been highly antagonistic and that it couldn't wait. I'm surprised even that you would say it hasn't been highly antagonistic because I think that uh, you know over the decades, if you see many of the decisions that have been uh, made by the judiciary and sometimes even more importantly, decisions that haven't been made to protect what you are calling the Yehuda elements of society, it would be very, it's, it's only non-antagonistic because the people being hurt don't have the power to really 
make it antagonistic. They're just kind of sometimes being squashed. Um, and so you have a judiciary that's often, you know, look back to the disengagement where yeah. young girls, really young girls, were being Dila, Dila, arrested. Dila. I want you to make this point, but when you say disengagement, I just want to throw in, you mean the destruction of the Jewish communities in Gaza in 2005. Exactly. And many people were protesting that, similar to the protests that they're doing now, except for that they, instead of the protests being allowed to carry on the way that they're carrying on now, uh, they were uh, largely arrested. Even young children were arrested, not allowed to speak to their parents, not allowed to speak to lawyers, and the judiciary did not defend them. To call these types of things non-antagonistic, I mean, the lack of interference of the judiciary in that destruction itself i mean could have easily been called unconstitutional under any other circumstances you're taking away people's property taking away their homes treating them terribly these are the classic examples where a supreme court doing its job should have gotten involved to say that it's not antagonistic is only because it hasn't been able to explode because every opposition has been squashed arrested stopped and 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 uh disparaged in the media and so to say that it's not antagonistic, I can't, you know, possibly agree with that. I think that it's a highly antagonistic issue that's been bubbling up at various uh, junctions. Um, and I also don't agree that this was able to wait. First of all, I, I want you to make your point about the young girls. You didn't end up making it. That they were arrested and not allowed to see lawyers, right. not allowed to see their parents, and the judiciary did not, did not come and say that this is unconstitutional and that we need to help these girls. No one said, well, wait a minute, what about the right to protest? This is, this is you know, right now, all of the protesters against judicial reform are blocking roads and really messing up day-to-day -day life. And during the disengagement from Gaza, uh, similar protests were broken apart by the police and the protesters arrested. So the judiciary's job is to make sure that the right to protest is being applied evenly across society. That is not, you know, that is not being done. Look at what happened. And, you know, you, you can you can you can bring countless examples of, you know, various. I mean, to say that the that the conflict between the Yehuda and Yosef elements, as you're describing them, has been sort of under the surface and very kind of, you know, as I, I think it's a little bit of a romantic description. This has been coming at various periods in Israel's history to to a head. I mean, and it, it's a conflict that's just been bubbling up and then kind of subsiding, bubbling up and subsiding. And it, it happens again and again, whenever there's a big decision that needs to be made. Look at Oslo. There's just, there's, 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 you know, I, I, it would be, it would be, I think it's, it's, it's even superfluous to go through all of the examples of these conflicts, but I would not say that they're not contentious. Hold on. Let, let me, let me just clarify for a moment. When I said non-antagonistic, I'm speaking, for, first of all, I'm not claiming that there's not antagonism between the Supreme Court and the elements of Israeli society who are more connected to Jewish identity, more deeply rooted in the land, uh, fighting for the territorial integrity of Eretz Israel, fighting for Jewish values, fighting for Jewish culture. Uh, of course, there's antagonism there. And of course, as you said, the Supreme Court and the media and the police have exponentially more power and have used that power in a very abusive way. No one is denying that. Uh, what I meant in terms of the contradictions within Israeli society being non-antagonistic, uh, maybe it's my fault for using Marxist language here, but basically I'm saying that there are contradictions always in society. There are contradictions. Some of them are antagonistic. Some of them are non-antagonistic. And uh, somebody who you know has a goal that they want to bring reality to uh, should know when is a good time to antagonize a contradiction and, and when is not a good time to antagonize a contradiction. Meaning, for the most part, Israeli society, I'm not talking about the Supreme Court 
and protesters or hilltop youth weren't in a conflict. I'm saying that Israeli society, more generally, um, was not fighting over these issues. Right now, there is an extremely polarizing fight taking place not only in Israeli society, but also in the broader Jewish world around this judicial reform. And it's not around judicial reform. It's about what is Israel going to be. It's about the socio-political, cultural trajectory of Israeli society. Is this state going to be a liberal Western democracy that reflects the values of Europe and the United States? Or is it going to be something uniquely Jewish that could be very scary, that could end up looking like a Jewish Iran? Like, I think that's what people are really afraid of. They're not afraid of uh, the Supreme Court losing a little bit of its power. They're afraid of Israel moving in a direction that is scary without checks. And they see the Supreme Court as the only possible check. Like, that is the institution that's in place to check what a lot of Israeli society has been made to fear, largely by our media and specific politicians. I'd say Yair Lapid, probably more than anyone else. But they've been made to fear that the Israel they know and love is going to transform into something dark and scary and out of touch with their values. That contradiction in society was non-antagonistic until this whole thing started. So the question is whether or not these contradictions were antagonized by the coalition, by Yeriv Levin and Simcha Rotman uh, pushing this uh, judicial reform legislation, or if those contradictions were being antagonized beforehand by Yair Lapid and other members of the opposition who were already whipping a lot of the public with the media, obviously, uh, whipping the public into a frenzy over this new coalition and what it's going to mean and, and how are we going to have Itamar Ben-Gvir and Betzela Smotrich and Avi Maoz uh, as ministers in this government and, and Ari Dairy, meaning there there's a question of who really started exacerbating these tensions in Israeli society, antagonizing these contradictions, uh, and an argument made both ways, but certainly even if we're going to argue that it was Yair Lapid and the media that started really antagonizing these contradictions before the judicial uh, reform legislation began, uh, that certainly didn't help. It definitely added fuel to the fire. I'm not saying it was wrong, because I think you've made an incredible case for why the judiciary needs to be curbed. Why, you know, just in terms of our state being a democratic state that protects the rights of everybody and reflects and expresses the identity and values of everybody here, that there needs to be reform. But the question is, was it necessary to do it at this time? Um, can they succeed? Do you see the coalition succeeding with this legislation? Or do you see them ultimately backing down? Okay, so there's a lot to there's a lot to unpack. I'm going to start from, you know, look, I think that there is one piece of the puzzle that, that, that needs to be clarified uh, to understand the urgency. It's easy to look at it and say, oh, well, you know, why now and why instigate and let's just let, you know, let things lie for now until there's more consensus in the future. Let's say the function of the judicial system was not standing in place. It's not like this was standing still since 1995, that there was this sort of constitutional revolution. And then and then now, you know, we've just been sort of flying on the fumes of that. This is an ever growing uh, an ever-growing issue. It's not standing still that you can just say, let's wait. I'll give you the most powerful example. Recently, there was a, uh, you know, a few years ago, they passed a law called the Basic Law of Israel as um, as the national, uh, how would you say that in Hebrew, uh, as, you know, the, the national country of the Jewish people. The nation state. Uh, the nation state of the Jewish people. Uh, there was 
a lawsuit uh, filed in the Supreme Court against this law on the question of if it is if it can be struck down by the Supreme Court. Now, you're probably saying to me, of course it can't be struck down because you just told me that in Bank Mizrahi in 1995, they said that that basic laws supersede regular laws. And so if a regular law contradicts a basic law, then that regular law can be canceled. How could they possibly cancel a basic law that's part of the Constitution if their entire authority that they've taken through their own interpretation, taken to cancel legislation, stems from the Constitution itself, from this, you know, uh, structured, you know, a, a constructed Constitution. The court did not throw that case out, right? You would think they're going to throw it out and say, sorry, it's a basic law. We can't cancel a basic law. They left it in what's called Sarichiyun, which means we'll see. And that's basically been the gun on the table because what's happening you know, what have people who don't agree with the, you know, judicial authority said? They said, oh, you know, let's let it lie. And, you know, one day when the climate is right, we'll pass a basic law that will set out, you know, what are the precise authorities and uh, rights of the judiciary when it comes to canceling legislation. One day we'll pass a basic law and we'll reform this issue if it gets out of hand and if the time is right. What court basically do? They basically put a gun on the table saying, if you try to do that, We've left it open-ended if we can cancel basic law. Now, once that happens, right? So that's that's sitting there right now on the table as a possibility of canceling basic laws, which basically means that the Supreme Court doesn't have just the authority to cancel regular laws, but to cancel what they have themselves defined as the Constitution itself. If they see the Constitution as not being what they refer to uh, in accordance with the basic principles of our system, right? They say, the basic principles of our system. Now, who decides the basic principles of our system? We might all have different visions of what the basic principles of our uh, national system should be, but it's basically saying that we can cancel, we have the, we've reserved the right to discuss in the future our authority to cancel basic laws that don't sit with our, that don't, that don't, uh, you know, that are not in accordance with our views of what are these sort of amorphic, like, you know, undefined uh, general principles of what we think that the country should be. It's not like you can just sit around and wait. That's a real thing that could happen. And once that happens, there's no reform in the future. You can't make any more reforms because the Constitution itself, even if you would pass a Constitution, the Constitution itself can be struck down by the Supreme Court should that ruling actually ever um, you know, come to be. And there's a reason that they left that as an open-ended possibility. And so I don't think you could say that this was not urgent. Okay. Now, you could argue, should we have waited a few months, maybe a different political climate? Yeah, like hindsight's twenty twenty. I do agree with you that the politicians definitely underestimated the level of, because specifically because, I mean, when you're listening to me describing the reforms, I imagine that you're saying, well, wait a minute, these don't sound so crazy. They sound like they would make us similar to many other countries that are, you know, democracies like, wow, why? It, it, when you hear the actual reform itself, it doesn't seem that dramatic. And so if you're just looking at it, at your, you know, as, as the laws themselves that are being proposed, you would have no reason to assume that the level of vitriol and the level of protest and the level of rage that you see in the streets would ensue from that. It seems like reforms. They're not saying that the Supreme Court can't cancel legislation. They're saying a broad panel, a large majority. These should not be things that knock people off their chairs. So what essentially 
is the only possibility is that they underestimated the level of what you're kind of hitting the nail on the head of is that this is goes far deeper than the wording of the law it goes down to like really deep-seated cultural differences and a lot of fears that are being fanned that are being fanned and they're being fanned intentionally i don't think and how do i know that they're being fanned intentionally because the people that are fanning these fears if you ask the people who are out in the street they're dressed up as a handmaid's tale and they're saying what if women aren't allowed to drive anymore and what if all minorities are going to be you know discriminated against and and you know uh, uh lgbtq will be will be jailed and they have these like fears that you look at yourself and you say well wait a minute this has no basis in the reform or in simply the constitutional history of israel up until 1995, the judiciary protected civil rights very often. The reform itself is not proposing. I mean, how how creating diversity within the court rather than having the court be like a small sliver of society, how that is such a tremendous threat to basic civil rights is clearly transcends just the issues themselves and goes to much deeper seated uh, cultural differences. But right. Just to play devil's advocate, I think that from their perspective, they see a growing population within Israeli society, a rapidly growing population within Israeli society that wants something very different from the state that they believe should be, the Israel that they believe should exist. And they see the Supreme Court as it exists right now as the only um, line of defense preventing Israel from becoming that. And so they fear that uh, taking power away from the Supreme Court now will make that institution powerless to prevent people like Smotrich or Ben Gvir or Maoz from turning Israel into something else tomorrow. 100%, which is why I'm saying that this it goes into a, a much, much deeper, like, intergroup fears, right? Like, the, uh, of it's about who we are and much less about the actual uh, wording of the legislation. Because otherwise we'd be sitting down and they could say, well, you know, not 80%, it should be 70% of the Supreme Court. Maybe uh, you should have the, you know, the, the appointment committee be even and have representatives of the opposition as well. Like, the fact that very few are willing to go into the nitty gritty and are just getting up on their hind legs and saying, we're not negotiating this at all, which has been the position of essentially of the chief justice of the Supreme Court and of many people who are leading the protests, which are don't even have any dialogue on this, then you see that it, it, it definitely goes more into the into the fear that if people from the other group have even a modicum, I mean, it would take decades to replace even half of the panel of the Supreme Court judges with people from, you know, more diverse backgrounds. It's an appointment, you know, it's a long term appointment. And so you know, it's it's the idea. It, it goes. It, it, this is it's a it's a lot more cultural than the claims that are being floated um, on the surface of things. Because if you look at the claims that are being floated on the circuit on the surface, excuse me, then you know you can see that they're plainly problematic. And and so I agree with you. People are worried about losing their way of life. But those fears, which are you could say partially founded, but not not tremendously founded, because it's not hard to think of ways that we can strengthen minority rights in Israel. It's not like minority rights have been, you know, uh, tremendously protected up until now. We can, there are many ways that we can think of how to protect, uh, protect such rights. And we could do that in dialogue and the reform could be, uh, you know, could include uh, a large array of protections against these fears. So, you know, I, I, I want to just go for a second. I'm, I'm getting lost in this argument. I want to go for a second to the, the sort of the, the main arguments that are being floated because I think that they're being floated by leadership that know them to be not true. For example, um, you know, 
the, the, the main claim that you hear is that this is going to hurt, you know, minority rights and, uh, you know, civil rights and civil protections. Now, I, I can't help but chuckle when I hear those things because it's easy to know if that argument is being floated sincerely or insincerely. You look at who are the parties, who are the people who are in favor of judicial reform and who are the people who are opposing judicial reform. Like if you want to talk about people being worried honestly about minority rights and human dignity, you have to look at who are the players here. In any society, look, just for just to, as an example, all the former heads of all the major security agencies in Israel, the you know, former heads of Shin Bet have come out against the reform. Now, in any normal circumstance, right? Who are the major, who are the major, uh, let's say, oppressors of civil liberties? Who are the major oppressors? It's the guys who are able to use state-sanctioned violence, right? It's the guys with the guns. Like you're talking about the police, the prosecution, the uh, the prison authorities, the Shin Bet, right? Like these are the people who are the most like suspect because why? They want to catch bad guys. And so they're always going to be pulling in the direction of invasion of privacy, uh, eliciting confessions violently, trying to, uh, you know, do searches. That's that's their job. They're always going to pull in that direction. Now, who's supposed to balance them out? Who's supposed to hold them back? Obviously, the Supreme Court. The Supreme Court is supposed to say, wait, 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 wait. We know you guys want to catch the bad guys, but you have to limit yourself in this way and limit yourself in that way. And you need a warrant and you need uh, you need to prove a cause and you need to prove that you're using proportionate force or not, you know, using force only in the cases that you're allowed to use force. And so in any normal situation, you have this sort of tug of war between the judiciary and all of the security forces in a country, right? All of the police forces and security forces. And they're supposed to be at a kind of tug of war. And the hope is that you'll get to a balance where civil liberties are protected, but the, you know, security agencies are able to enforce the law, uh, you know, with reasonable efficacy. It's very perplexing that under the claim that the main fear here is, uh, is abuse of human rights, you have all of the security agencies coming and saying, no, we need the Supreme Court to be just like it is. That should be very suspect. And then when you look on the other side, who are the main supporters of judicial reform? Well, sorry, let's say let's go back with the the, the, oppo the opponents. We have the security agencies. Who else opposes? Who else opposes the judicial reform? You have the media, the academia, the richest, all the the you know a few of the you know some of the big high tech companies. You're talking about like the top top echelons of society, the people who have the power in the security forces, people who have power in the legal you know various legal bodies people who have the power in the academia. And now you have all of these strata coming together and saying, no, 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 we're so worried about civil liberties. These are people in any society, the people are like the least likely, the least likely, it's possible that they can suffer uh, human rights abuses, but they're obviously the least likely to be suffering from government uh, tyranny. And who is the most likely to be suffering? Obviously, the weakest, the poorest, the minorities, the immigrants, these are the people, you know, it, 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 it's always possible for, for anybody to, to suffer from government tyranny. But it's just like if you're looking for the most obvious suspects, right, who are the most obvious people who are going to be abused, the people who can't afford lawyers, the people who don't speak the language, the people who don't have money, the people who can't take off work to go out and, you know, uh, uh, you know, protest or fight for their rights. Those are the people who are the most the most likely to have their rights be abused. Now, look in Israel, who is in favor of this reform? Who is in favor of the reform? It's primarily the poor, the religious minorities, 
the more traditional right? like, elements of society. The more traditional, but the traditional elements of society that are also often the poorest and the most, meaning it's not just from the fact that they're traditional, it's from the fact that these are the people, most of the people, I, I work sometimes in criminal law, okay? Now, the people who are at these protests most likely have never seen an arrest. They've never seen someone's house be searched. They've never, right? Like they don't know criminals. These are like the, these are like the finest, finest, most respected members of society. Do you know who has seen that happen? Poor people. Poor people see arrests all the time in their neighborhoods. They see police violence. They see government uh, abuses. They see illegal searches. They see all of these things taking place and they don't see a court that's protecting people like them and people that look like them. And so if you have, on the one hand, the security forces coming and saying, we really like the Supreme Court, leave it exactly how it is. And you have this minorities, you know, if, if, you, if you see like, for example, in ultra-Orthodox protests, the level of police violence far exceeds, far exceeds any type of violence that's been used uh, against protesters, which is basically non-existent, against protesters of the judicial reform. You, there are different tactics taken by the government towards different groups and the stronger the groups are the more they're able to stand up for themselves and protect themselves and so you have a country where the weakest the poorest the minorities the people who don't necessarily speak the language maybe the language technically maybe don't speak you know great hebrew or just even the cultural language they don't speak legalese they don't speak the language that the media likes to hear these are people that might have you know uh, a different kind of cultural lingo those people are coming and saying, we don't feel that this judiciary is protecting us. We want change. And so you have to have, I mean, and, and look, for example, you don't see a lot of Israeli Arabs at the protests. I don't, I, I think you see almost none because Arabs in Israel by and large do not feel, at least this is my impression, do not feel that they have had sufficient protection of their rights by the Supreme Court. Mm -hmm. And so all of the minorities are saying, either saying we're not in favor or or, or or even further, you know, even even more so we're, we're in, we don't feel that the Supreme Court is protecting us. And so you have to kind of have a little bit of a cynical chuckle when you hear people talking about the, these protests as if they're about protecting minority rights. Then where the heck are the minorities? Where the heck are the minorities, you know, the, the bulk of the minorities that are uh, not showing up to these protests? On the contrary, they voted in this government and want to see these reforms. And so you have to have a little bit of a cynical view uh, when you hear, you know, this, this idea being primarily put to the out, you know, to the international community as if this is somehow about minority rights. It's, it's, it's like you can't make this stuff up. It's the exact opposite. And the question is, who is more likely to tyrannize minorities? The protesters are saying we are afraid of the Knesset tyrannizing us. And so we, we want the Supreme Court to protect us. And the supporters of the of the reform are saying we're afraid of being tyrannized by the supreme court and we trust the knesset because they have accountability to us because we elect them we trust them to protect us more and that's sort of the argument and then the question is is who is more likely to tyrannize and who is more likely to protect elected officials who represent the public or unelected officials who have no accountability to the public that's like kind of where it breaks down right and then you have to remember that there was you know there was as i said protection of rights before this judicial revolution and this the 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 proposed reform doesn't completely roll back doesn't completely roll back the uh 1995 revolution it simply modifies it and limits it to a certain degree but it's not like the reforms are coming to say well there's not going to be a supreme court and it's not going to have any power so you know I, I think that you need to take the arguments that are being floated on the on you know as as the main arguments you have to take them with 
a grain of salt by just using simple logic and looking at who is in favor of this and who is against it and, and what what, the, what is the argument really about it's part of a cultural battle about the future of the state where it, it's a, it's really a fight between yosef and yuda over benjamin that's what it comes down to benjamin being the future of our state and uh, in the next generation and where is Israel going? That, that's really what it comes down to here. Now, let me ask you a question. Do you foresee this legislation passing? Do you see this being pushed through? Well, I'm, I'm not a political analyst, so I'm not gonna kind of give like my prophecy. I'll tell you this. I think that what was forced, what they foresaw was they floated like their, I, the government, you know, the coalition floated what I think was like their most extreme version of their reform. And they included things that even a person who, uh, you know, who wants to see reform, even a person like me who's in favor of reform, some things I say, well, well, you know, this might be going too far. You know, I, I still want to see reasonability, you know, our government accountable to reasonability. I don't necessarily want there to be an override clause. Like, I don't, you know, think that it's necessarily ideal that the Knesset be able to override the Supreme Court. If the, if the full panel of the Supreme Court says, you know, that something is unconstitutional and 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 you know, is a human rights abuse. I don't really want the Knesset to just be able to override that. So, you know, I think there's some things here that even to a person like me might look like they went a little bit too far. But I think that even they, even the proponents saw that that, that way. And that my guess is that their kind of plan was they're going to float every possible reform that they could think of. And then there would be some sort of negotiations as always happens in the legislative process. There would be negotiations and people, would, well, what about this? And think about what would happen if you do that? You know, the outcome might not be good. Uh, you know, this could hurt minorities or that could hurt society and, you know, kind of balance it out. Right. And then there would there would it was like a negotiating tactic. What's happened was, was I think they didn't foresee, as I said, I don't think they foresaw the level of rage and and you know the, the types of the types of protests in terms of the level of violence and the level of um, civil unrest and economic unrest that they're trying to create. Um, I don't think that they foresaw that. I think that they foresaw that they have the majority and that they would be generous in you know negotiating. The unfortunate reality is that no one is coming to the table. You know, there, there's an effort by Herzog. There's an effort by uh, Friedman and Al-Bashan. You know, a few, there are a few different, um, you know, there are a few different people who are coming and saying, let's talk about this and let's try to make a, you know, some sort of broad consensus. But by and large, the major players who would have been ex expected to be leading, to be leading the peacemaking efforts and trying to find something that's agreeable to everything. I mean, there's no reason that we shouldn't agree on rules for how legislation can be canceled. It's not reasonable that that just be created by the judiciary itself. There should be rules. But now, now within the rules, there's a certain amount of flexibility. How many judges, how large of a majority, right? Under what circumstances can you cancel a law? These are all things that can be discussed and they should be set out and you can, you can find consensus on them. But I think that what's happened is, is that the, the cultural war has like bubbled up so dramatically that it's like there's no one to play ball with, essentially. And so then what might happen is that this will be kind of rammed through as is without going through appropriate negotiation and amendment that is always supposed to happen in the Knesset. You have an opposition there in order to raise questions about, you know, how good of an idea this is and where you can make it better. That's the opposition's job. And so because things have become so, um, I'll use your word, so antagonistic, um, I'm I'm concerned that what's going to happen. So you know you you have one one you know you kind of have two options. Either things become so antagonistic that you know the government is going to back down and you know get terrified from all the international pressure and the civil unrest going on in Israel, or they'll double down and say like, 
we're just pushing this through as is and 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 both of those are you know a shame the first i would say worse than the the, the second but it's a shame because the right way to do things would be to actually sit down and have a reasonable conversation about each element of the reform and how we can tweak it to make it how we can tweak it to make it better uh and we can kind of uh address the concerns the legitimate concerns of people who fear that this will in some way harm them so you know to find a way that you can address that without throwing the reform this important reform away and so that would be the ideal but unfortunately things have become so heated that it's hard to see anybody being able to actually sit down and do that calm and level-headed work right i think the real issue here is we need to address the real fears on the Yosef side. I mean, there, there's a legitimate concern that they're about to lose their country, their way of life, their society. Uh, they're scared of where Israel's going. Um, that needs to be addressed. Th those fears definitely need to be addressed. We, we are a collection of tribes here. Um, they are losing their dominance over Israeli society, you know, since even before the state. B basically, you know, we can look at Zionism as the Gona Vilna does, as the movement of Mashiach ben Yosef, when the kochot, when the talents and powers and abilities of Yosef are used towards Jewish liberation uh, and advancing uh, and advancing our interests, advancing our historic mission. Um, but once that was done, once Yosef fulfilled its messianic or its a revolutionary uh, task, I, I think we saw uh, Yosef, the force of Yosef kind of slide back towards like an assimilationist impulse. I think there's a very dialectical relationship between the Haskalah, between the Jewish Enlightenment and Zionism. On the one hand, Zionism was very much a rejection of the Haskalah's reframing of Jewish identity from like an ancient people to a religion. Uh, but at the, on the other hand, I don't think Zionism could have come into being without the Haskalah, without uh, the Enlightenment. Uh, so you see that this, this backslide kind of took place towards an assimilationist impulse, and you have this desire to be an am kecholamim, like a, a nation like other nations. Another flag of the UN, an outpost of Western civilization in the Semitic region, essentially Rhodesia, um, but maybe I'm being flippant. I, I think there is something very, um, very important to a lot of those people. And I think that maybe we're at a point in Israel's national development where the Yosef camp realizes that they're no longer going to be able to force their will, their beliefs, their identity, their ideological worldview on the rest of Israeli society forever. Like that can't continue forever but they still want to be able to preserve it for themselves. And maybe that's where we can really negotiate. And maybe the answer is some kind of uh, federalism in the state of Israel, you know, different tribes having different territories where laws might be a little bit different and culture might be a little bit different uh, and identity might be expressed differently. Um, but I think that we're definitely at a point where I think at the very least, they're starting to realize that their dominance over all the other tribes of Israel can't continue forever. And if they want to preserve their way of life, maybe maybe we need to be creative and, and in dialogue with one another. Yeah, I tend to agree that that's the direction that ideally, you know, that type of dialogue needs needs the real the real concerns to be on the table. And what's happening now is you have, and I don't agree with you that they've yet come to that realization that they're that this is sort of an inevitable change. I think I think they're fighting with everything they have, understandably. Um, but I think that until the real issues are put on the table with with honesty and not, uh, you know, the demagoguery of what it's, you know, of what is being presented 
externally as being about, then then you're not going to be able to have those negotiations. Those those, those types of real sincere discussions can only be had when the actual issues are put on the table and not the, you know, exaggerated or, you know, fake kind of points that are being brought up in order to, let's say, garner international uh, interest or support and, you know, for one side or the other. So, so I agree that, that that's a level of, that's a level of kind of openness and honesty that needs to be, that we need to strive for. Agreed. Uh, so, Tila Gimpel, uh, I want to thank you so much for giving me so much of your time coming on the show and really giving us this deep dive into the history of Israel's judiciary and a little bit of the lesser known details about the Supreme Court's powers, about this legislation um, that people really should know about, you know, whether it's people here in Israel or people abroad who are really uh, watching the show, so to speak, watching this play out. Um, I, I think it's really important that people be informed, people understand what we're fighting over or what we're not fighting over. Uh, and of course, what's really lying beneath the surface in, in this battle. And again, I, I, I think we're in agreement that if we can address some of the issues beneath the surface, uh, the tensions surrounding the legislation uh, will likely cool. Yeah, well, thank you for having me. I really enjoyed our conversation. Okay, this is Yudaha Kohen, Vision Movement, Vision Magazine, and you're listening to the Next Stage podcast. Uh, once again, our podcast is completely supported by listeners. So if you're able to contribute to our work, you can go to visionmag.org or visionmovement.org and click the donate button on the menu bar up top. Uh, if you're not in a position to support our work financially, you can also really help us by sharing episodes of this podcast, giving it a positive rating and review. Uh, that also goes a long way in helping us to spread these ideas further and further in the Jewish world and beyond. Uh, and anyone interested in checking out the show notes for this episode can go to visionmag.org backslash the next stage. 9-4.